At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. All month long, we are going to be talking about how God is with us. That is our theme this Christmas season. And we're going to be kicking off this sermon series today. But before we we kick this series off, um, I I want to to think a little bit with you about the last week that that I've lived through. Like many of you, I asked you if you had traveled. We we traveled. Our family went up to Bartlesville where uh, we are from. Both sets of family are there. And we were able to see all of our family on Thursday and Friday. And it was just a wonderful time for us to get together and to celebrate and to remember the things that we are thankful for that the Lord has blessed us with. And family is a big part of that. But even as we gathered to celebrate Thanksgiving, we also had a special opportunity as a family on my side of the family. Uh, to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday. Now, I say celebrate her 80th birthday uh, because her 80th birthday wasn't Wednesday, but Wednesday is when we celebrated it. If you're part of a big family, you know how that works. Uh, many months ago, a birthday ha- happens, and it's a while till everybody is able to gather. And we were able to gather on Wednesday, and we were able to celebrate my mom. And it was just all kinds of fun. Uh, It's wonderful to have a birthday in my family because my sister is a professional event planner. And so when she organized the events related to this party, it was awesome. I mean, there were three different segments of this party all gathered around different tables with their own decorations. Uh, we gathered at one time around what we called the kitty table because my mom was an educator for years and years and we wrote teacher thank you notes and gave teacher appreciation gifts and it was awesome. We had little, you know, a goldfish and Dixie cups. It was amazing as we, we celebrated like kids, remembering my mom. And then we had a time where, because my mom likes to play games, we called her the queen of our hearts. Ah, oh, it was lovely. And, and then we had a time where we, we, we gathered and we ate a meal together because we love to do that as a family. And it was just a, hours and hours of celebrating. Now, when I go through all of those details, some of you might think that that's a little bit excessive, that that's a little bit much. And my response to that would be, that's a little bit much for you, but not for us and not for my mom because we know who she is. And we know the impact that she's had on our lives. And so it was no chore for us to get together and for hours to celebrate her in all the ways that God has blessed us through her. Now, I I say all of that today because as we head into the Christmas season, sometimes we have a perspective that goes like this. The celebration of Christmas is a little much, isn't it? Now, certainly we have that thought at times when we walk in a store and we think of the commercialization of the holiday and all those kinds of things. But if we're not careful, we can even think that about the church. You know, at the beginning of our our time here, I, I walked through a number of different ways that we were celebrating Christmas, and I didn't even mention all of them as a church family. We got Mission Norman, we've got uh, some books and some invitations, we've got special services, we got Christmas Eve, we got daily devotions, we got all of this stuff that is happening this month, month. And it's possible because of that that some of you might be going, well, isn't that a little much? And I would say, well, that depends on who we're celebrating, right? 
If we're celebrating the God who created all things, if we're celebrating the Savior who came and bled and died for us, then I would say that it is not too big of a thing for us as followers of Jesus to make much of the celebration of his coming. And that's what we're going to be doing all month long here at Wildwood. Now, when I think about today as we kick this series off, I I want us to look in part one at two different stories of deliverance. Two different stories. One of the stories of deliverance is found in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And the second story of deliverance is found in the New Testament in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And so what we're going to do in our time today is we're going to look first at this Old Testament account of deliverance, and then we'll look at the New Testament account, and we'll see that they are connected, and we will see that they are encouraging for us on a number of levels today. So let's dive in, and we're going to see these two passages, these two accounts of deliverance. We're going to begin with the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7, as we see a history of deliverance, a history of deliverance. Now, Isaiah fits inside of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament era, uh, we need to have a context for what happened in that era. The Old Testament is uh, the time where God initiated a relationship with the nation of Israel. It's where God reached out to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and those who bless you will be blessed. And then the promises that God gave to Abraham of being a people and having land and those kinds of things were passed down to his son, Isaac, and ultimately to Isaac's son, Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons who would be representatives of what we know of as the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this people that God set apart, that God initiated with in his grace, God rescues, he delivers, he saves While they are slaves in Egypt, that's what we find in the book of Exodus, where God takes them out of the land of Egypt, and in the days of Joshua, brings them to the promised land, where they establish as a people in the land that we know of as Palestine today. Now, this land where they come to reside is ruled over by the nation of Israel, and it reaches its high point under King David. It had, its borders were, were, were the furthest out. Its, its reign was the most secure as David was king. The very same David who slung the stone and hit Goliath became king of Israel and led the nation at its high point in the past. But after David's death, it moved on to Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's life, the nation began a decline and it divided into two parts. One of those parts was Israel in the north, and the other part was Judah in the south. Judah being one of the 12 tribes, that area with Jerusalem as its capital, and then the northern area, the rest of the tribes, and they were separated, Israel and Judah. Now, during that era of separation, Israel decided to attack Judah. And they gathered in 734 BC to attack Judah around the city of Jerusalem while Ahaz was king of Judah. 
Now, this is the context of the Old Testament, and it sets us up to see what happens in Isaiah chapter 7. So what do we see in Isaiah 7? Well, Isaiah 7 verse 1 tells us this. It says, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, without the context that we just shared, this statement sounds confusing. Why would the king of Israel be attacking Jerusalem? Well, it's because Israel, in this context, is talking about that northern nation. And Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So Israel was attacking Judah. And their troops are gathering outside the capital city. Now, what were they doing? Well, they had formed an alliance with Syria. It says in verses 5 and 6, Syria with Ephraim, Ephraim here being uh, another way to describe Israel. So Syria and Israel and the son of Ramaliah, who was the king of the nation of Israel, devised an evil plan against Judah, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So the armies of Israel and the armies of Syria are gathering outside the city of Jerusalem to terrorize it, to bring it to a great fear, and ultimately to attack it and to overthrow the leader of Judah, Ahaz, and establish the son of Tabeel as the new king of Judah, somewhat of a puppet king who would have allegiances to Israel and to Syria. That was their plan. Well, their desire was to terrify Judah, and they had succeeded. <laughs> they had succeeded. As Judah looks out and sees the armies of Israel and Syria assembling, they are upset. We see this in verses 2 and 3. When the house of David, when Judah was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Israel, the heart of Ahaz the king and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What a poetic way to describe it. In Oklahoma, we're used to leaves shaking in the wind, aren't we? Trees rustling. Uh, we'll see more of that even in the days ahead and the weeks ahead. But this is a, a picture of what was happening in the hearts of the people of Judah. They were shaking in fear of Israel in Syria. And not just the nation in general, but Ahaz in particular, because they were coming for his head and he was upset. So what does Ahaz do? Well, it says that Ahaz went for a walk and he went to the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Now, what was he doing? Was he just going for a swim to blow off some steam? No. His presence by the upper pool in the conduit was a reminder that he was scared to death. As the armies are assembling, he goes out to walk by the pool or the water source. He's making sure that it's secure, that if his city comes under siege, that they'll be able to survive because they have something to drink. Ahaz is scared to death, walking by the pool, his heart shaking like a tree in the wind. And he was a picture of the nation of Judah at that time. So what happens next? Well, God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to be his mouthpiece, to be God's mouthpiece, to go and to meet Ahaz while he was hanging out by the pool, scared to death. And Isaiah walks up to Ahaz and gives him this message. Be careful, be quiet. 
Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin, king of Syria, and of the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel. Isaiah goes and speaks for God and says, hey, Ahaz and hey, Judah, you're shaken like a tree in the wind because you're so scared of these two enemy kings. But God says, it's gonna be okay. I'm gonna take care of them. They look like mighty oaks bringing all kinds of terror and fear to you. But God says, in my eyes, they are nothing but a smoldering stump. God says, I'm gonna take care of the things that terrify you. Now, with this message that is delivered, how do you imagine Ahaz responded? Well, at some level, I'm guessing that in his heart, Ahaz is going, wait, really? Is this really what's gonna happen? I mean, I'm looking out, I'm seeing the armies, our people are scared, I'm scared, they wanna kill me. I mean, really, you're gonna, you're gonna intervene, God? Is that really what's going to happen? Well, in order to verify that this message was really from God, the Lord has Isaiah continue. And he says this, he says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. The, the armies will not take you out. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He gives more detail. He says, it's really gonna happen. I'm gonna take them out. They will not overtake you. And God even takes it one step further. Not only will they not overtake you, but within 65 years, this offshoot nation of Israel will not even exist as a nation any longer. It's gonna be okay, God says. I'm going to protect you, O nation of Judah. But again, Ahaz, I'm guessing, is experiencing some doubt in his heart. So God prompts Isaiah to continue speaking. And it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah and says, ask of the Lord your God a sign. In other words, are you wondering if this is going to happen? Are you wondering when it's going to happen? Ask God for some more information and have whatever sign you want, have it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, have the sign that you get from God be as hard, as difficult to fulfill as you want to make it. But Ahaz responds and says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. In other words, I don't even know what kind of a sign to say, and I certainly am afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so Isaiah continues and says back to him, well, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, Ahaz, if you can't think of the sign, God will provide it himself. So what is the sign that will be given that will verify and guarantee the timeline of Judah's deliverance from the armies of Israel and Syria? Well, that answer comes in the second half of verse 14 through verse 16. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey 
when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, is this section of these verses familiar to you? It probably is. We'll talk more about why it's so familiar to us in just a little bit. But I think it's helpful for us to think of how Ahaz would have understood this. Remember, Ahaz is is looking at enemy armies. He is thinking his head is going to be on a stick. And God says, be still, be quiet. Understand that I'm going to bring a deliverance for you, Ahaz. And Ahaz is wondering, well, how will I know and when will this happen? And God says, I will give you a sign that will designate the time period for this deliverance. And so he gives a prophecy about a virgin who will conceive and who will bear a son. And before this son is old enough to understand good from evil, the deliverance will take place. Now, what is he talking about? And how would Ahaz have understood it? Well, basically, this timeline might help us make some sense of this. The prophecy was given in 734 BC. And the prophecy says that deliverance will come from the armies of Israel and from Syria. And it will be guaranteed because there will be a virgin who will have a child. And before that child is old enough to know good from evil, the deliverance will have taken place. Now, 734 BC is when that happens. A timeline to understand this is that sometime in 733 BC, a virgin conceived and had a child. Now, when I say that, you're thinking, wait a second, this is not the story that I thought you were going to tell. What are you talking about? Well, I think that the timeline would go something like this. When the prophecy was given in 734 BC, there was a woman who had no husband, was not married, and was still a virgin. That woman would find a husband, would get married, would have natural relations with her husband, and eventually give birth to a child who would be named Emmanuel. And that child would be born probably at least a year or so after the prophecy was given, enough time for her to get married, to have relations nine months gestation, and deliver the child. And when the child was born, before that child was old enough to make their own moral decisions to understand good and evil, the deliverance would happen. So what happened? Well, in 732 BC, this is a historical fact, both the king of Israel, Pekah, and the the king of Syria, Rezin, both died. They were like smoldering stumps. They passed away. The the kings that, that looked like they were going to take Judah out were dealt with by God and and died on the spot within a short amount of time from when the prophecy was given. And then about 722, Israel was ultimately sacked by an invading nation. That northern kingdom is politically done away with. And not only was it politically done away with, but as they were intermarrying with others, by 669 BC, the nation of Israel was 
gone with any kind of national identity. That northern kingdom was gone. So that the prophecy that Isaiah gives that within 65 years, Israel will be shattered, came true to the day. And within two years, before this young child was able to determine good from evil, the two kings that were terrorizing them would be dealt with also came true to the letter of law. This prophecy was given as an intention of encouraging Ahaz as he was being attacked. And encouraging news it was. Now, what does all of that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, a couple of things that I I want us to see. The first thing is this. I want to ask you, what causes your heart to shake like a tree? But be honest, what causes your heart to shake like a tree? There are things that cause your heart to shake like a tree. There are things that cause my heart to shake in fear. Is it medical diagnosis for you or for a loved one? Is it financial dealings, the state of your bank account, the state of your savings, the state of your employment? What causes your heart to shake? Is it, is it relationships that, are, that are, are splintering? Is it the political climate in the world around us? Is it some place where you spend a lot of time, whether it's work or school or your neighborhood or your family? There are things that are causing our heart to shake. Is it, is it the, the, the threat of being alone as your family situation is changing with death or with empty nest? What causes your heart to shake? Well, friends, in this account, we see some encouragement. The encouragement for Ahaz was to take the thing that was causing his heart to shake and to place it on the timeline, to place it on the timeline, for him to understand that it was a relatively short period of time before the things that terrorized him, the things that terrified him would be dealt with in an emphatic way. And in the same way, we are to take the things that cause us fear and to place them on God's timeline. Think about it this way. Our problems right now we're experiencing in 2022. Now, I want us to look at this line. This line is is fixed at this end. We have not existed forever. We had a moment where we were born. But notice on this end, the arrow is pointing. There's an eternity that lies in front of us. The problems that we experience right now are but a dot on a much longer line. When we are experiencing the problems of our day, the problems of our life, it is encouraging for us to do what God did for Ahaz, to take our problems and to place them on the timeline so that we understand that they will not go on forever. And that we understand the the blessings that God has for us in eternity far outweigh the struggles that we experience today. Friends, we are to take the things that cause our hearts to shake and we are to place it on the timeline. Now, when we talk about this, and we talk about this in light of Isaiah 7, I know what some of you are thinking. Wait, what? What what are you what are you doing, pastor? Why are you talking about Ahaz and virgin births and anchoring them only in 734 BC? I mean, isn't there a different way to read these verses? 
Isn't there a way to read them that doesn't just look backwards and say this history of deliverance that happened for Israel back in the 730s? Isn't there a way for us to think of them in a contemporary way? And of course, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Why are we even preaching Isaiah 7 on the first Sunday of the Christmas season? Why? Where have you heard Isaiah 7 verse 14 before? The virgin will conceive a child? Who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. It's his story for our deliverance. There's a second way of reading these verses. And we see that as we look at how Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, quotes the verses we just read in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 1, it says this, all this took place. Well, what is all this? Matthew 1 is clearly talking about the birth of Jesus, his birth to the Virgin Mary. All of that took place. Why? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Isaiah. When did Isaiah talk about this? In Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And Matthew proceeds to quote it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's a way for us to read this and understand this that is connected intimately to Jesus Christ. And what this reminds us of is that there are, in fact, two meanings to the prophecy of Isaiah 7. There's an original meaning to the prophecy from Isaiah 7 that applied to the child that was born in Ahaz's day, indicating the length of time that Judah would be terrorized by Syria and Israel. But also there's a very important second meaning that talks not just about what happened in the 730s, but talks about what happened 730 years later when Jesus was born to Mary. And this second meaning, friends, is greater than the first in every way. It is greater than the first in every way. So in what ways is it greater? Let's let's compare these two. Let's compare the account from Ahaz's day in Isaiah 7 with Jesus' birth in Matthew 1. Now, in Ahaz's day, the birth of the child was a sign, a sign from God of the timetable of deliverance. Jesus' virgin birth was also a sign from God that he was doing some delivering work through the life and ministry of Jesus. As it relates to the situation in Ahaz's day, we need to remember that we're talking about a natural conception. So when it says that a virgin will conceive and have a child, it is not saying that there was an immaculate conception. There was a natural conception. The virgin is just a reference to the fact that the woman who would conceive in Ahaz's day was not married yet had not had natural relations with her husband yet. But once she did and had a child, that would kick off the timeline of their deliverance. It was a natural conception that was talked about in Ahaz's day. But when we think about what happens in in Jesus' birth, 
Friends, we're talking about a supernatural conception. See, Mary wasn't just a virgin at one point. She was a virgin when she conceived through supernatural means, not through natural means. And she would remain a virgin throughout her period of gestation with Jesus so that when Jesus was born, it was an entirely supernatural occurrence. We'll talk in a little bit about why God did it that way, but it's important for us to see that this virgin birth is greater in every way than the one that happened in Ahaz's day. The deliverance in Ahab's day, Ahaz's day was a temporary deliverance. It was a temporary deliverance. In other words, they were temporarily relieved of the pressure from Israel and Syria, but ultimately the nation of Judah would find trouble with other nations. So it was a temporary deliverance that was provided. But the deliverance that comes through Jesus is greater in every way because it was a permanent deliverance that Jesus would bring. The deliverance in Ahaz's day was from nations, Israel, and Syria. The deliverance that came, the permanent deliverance that Jesus brings is from sin and all of its consequences. It is greater in every way. This is specific to one nation. This is the trouble that all people experience. God has provided deliverance through Christ for each of us who trust in him. In Ahaz's day, Emmanuel was a nickname. It was, it was symbolic. God did, wasn't really born to that, in that child. It was just the child was a reminder that God would be delivering the nation in that era. But when we think of Jesus, it was not just symbolic. Jesus actually was God who came to dwell among them. It's greater in every way. So when we think of understanding this prophecy and seeing how, how great a provision it brings to us, uh, this chart might be helpful. But I want to, to go a little bit further with answering this question. Why the virgin birth at all? I mean, if God himself picks the sign, why did he pick that sign? Why, what is the significance of the virgin birth? Well, a few things, three things I want us to think about. The first thing I think we need to remember is the virgin birth was important because it was a sign of supernatural deliverance. There's only one who has ever been conceived in this way. Full supernatural means. That's what God did when Jesus was born. In that way, there's like a spotlight that shines on Jesus. And this spotlight helps us differentiate him from every other birth for us to understand that this is really significant that Jesus came. It's a sign for us, a sign of God's supernatural work in Christ. A second reason why the virgin birth is necessary, though, was it was necessary because Jesus already was. Jesus already was. You see, when someone is born, we think of them as coming into existence. We're not some disembodied spirit that suddenly inhabits a physical body. But when we are born, God knits us together in our mother's wombs and, and makes us into a person. We have a beginning and, and our beginning happens with DNA from mom and DNA from dad that come together and form a new person. But Jesus is different. 
There never was a time that Jesus wasn't. He did not begin in Bethlehem, but has eternally existed as the Son of God. And since he has eternally existed as the Son of God, it's not as though God looked around the world and said, I'll adopt that one and kind of sprinkle him with some divinity and Jesus will then live this divine life. No, that's not how it worked. Jesus, who has eternally existed, came down to this earth and inhabited the womb of Mary. Nine months in utero and then developed at a normal pace and lived out his life and his ministry and his purpose. We'll talk in the next couple of weeks about the significance of that. But the reason why the virgin birth is necessary for our conversation today is for us to remember it's a reminder that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, but he has always existed. So his arrival needed to be unique in that way. But also Jesus' virgin birth is necessary because Jesus was a new Adam. You see, the Bible talks about how all of humanity are descendants of Adam and Eve. And in Romans chapter 5 in particular, it talks about how as sons and daughters of Adam, we have inherited from Adam our father a sinful disposition, a sinful nature something that is broken, not just in what we do and say, but even in our identity of who we are. There is something broken. There's something off. And we inherited that from Adam. And all of the descendants of Adam have dealt with this since his time and going forward. But Jesus, who is born of a virgin, misses that original sin. Jesus came and inhabited the womb and was born without this original sin. So not only does Jesus not sin in what he says or does, but Jesus has no sin even attached to his identity or his person in any way. This is incredibly important, friends, because this means that Jesus could offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins and pay for our sins because he had to pay for none of his own. Again, this idea is talked about in Romans 5. I'd encourage you to read it for yourself later this afternoon. But the contents of Romans 5 are summarized well by uh, hymn writers, Matt Boswell, Matt Papa, and Keith Getty, when they write the song, Christ the True and Better. And they say this in the first verse, Christ the True and Better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse. Then rising, crushed the serpent's head. The virgin birth brings the supernatural to us. God came to be with us, ultimately to die for us and to deliver us. Friends, all this reminds me, who could bring about such a deliverance? It's not as though there are many who could have done this. There is only one. It is only Jesus who had the spotlight shown on his birth through the virgin conception that he was unique. God himself who came to rescue us. And so, how do we respond? Well, just a couple of things. The first thing I would say is this. This Christmas, I want you to pay attention 
I want you to pay attention because God has given us a sign in the birth of Jesus, a sign of his uniqueness, a sign of his divinity, a sign that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A spotlight shines on Jesus because of the circumstances around his coming. We celebrate this. We read these passages. We look at it because we need to remember that Jesus is unlike anyone else. And as we remember that very fact, as we remember that Jesus is God himself, we need to know that it changes everything. It changes everything. And if Jesus being God changes everything, then let me ask you, what does it change for you? What does it change for you? If Jesus is God, then that means that his word is not just another opinion. His word is truth. His word is authoritative. His word is a direction to us. Are we heeding it? Are we turning? Are we listening? Are we following in obedience? If Jesus is God, it changes everything. What does it change for you? If Jesus is God, when we talk about how salvation is found in Jesus' name, we're not just saying we hope it's found in his name. We're saying we know it's found in his name because salvation is from God alone. So this Christmas, as we think about God being with us, I want you to pay attention. I want you to lean in. You know, there's a number of different things that we're doing to help remember this. Uh, if you go to our website, wildwoodchurch.org slash Christmas, you'll see there a number of resources. We have playlists of songs and Apple Music and Spotify that, that highlight God being with us to kind of make a soundtrack for us on this great truth this Christmas time. We have daily devotions that are linked there that you can go. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at John's gospel every day to see the signs and sayings that... Jesus has revealed about his identity as God. We'll be seeing that so that we can see the spotlight shine on Jesus as God himself. And then there's information about each of our Sundays this month there as well. Let's see the spotlight. Let's bow our knees. Let's worship him together this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for your, your love and your life your grace that you have extended to us, how you, you came to us and you came to us in a spectacular way with a spotlight shining so that we might not miss your arrival. Lord, thank you that this message has made its way to us and that you have given us the grace to understand it, the, the faith to believe it. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, we would not miss the amazing implication that you came to be with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that that changes everything. We pray these things in your name. Amen.